from this morning after we got here and, and got set up, I was looking out the window and there was a, a bird. It could have been a turkey buzzard, could have been a hawk, I don't know what, but he was over across the street in the parking lot and he was just soaring. And it's a windy day outside. Uh, and what the Lord said to me is he said, that's the way my people need to be. We need to be up here above all this stuff instead of down here. The wind is like the turbulence that we get from the world today. And you don't even have to watch the news. You, know, you get it in your, your workplace. You, you get it in the traffic on the way home. But we need to stay up above it instead of getting down in the weeds. Because, you know, how many of you all have ever gone berry picking? You know, you, all the good berries are in the middle of the briar patch. Well, you fight in, you get in there, and you get caught up in the briars, and you start fighting against the briars. Well, that's what we're doing. If we're down in the weeds, we're fighting against the briars. We're not up above the situations where Jesus is, and we're, because we are in him, where we are. So the Lord just simply says, this is where my people need to be. So, and Jackie, I think that you said it. You're up here. You're above. You're looking down on your situation. Right. It's just a confidence in God that he'll do what he said. So <laughs> Jesus got kicked out of places. <laughs> well, can I borrow him for a little bit? Okay. <laughs> that's, that's right. Well, today what we're going to talk about is uh, there's a saying that a lot of people will say, well, it is what it is. And we're going to talk about how looks can be deceiving. That's right. You know, just because the world says it is what it is, if you're, you know, saved and following Jesus Christ, it's not. It's what God says it is. So, but I'm, you know, I wouldn't be surprised, you know, if everybody in here hasn't said that phrase at one time or another, that it is what it is. And you might not have said those exact words, but maybe you said, oh, I feel a cold coming on, or, you know, my back hurts. It must be the flu, uh, you know, or whatnot, or, you know, I got to you know, a bank statement today that says, you know, I got a couple cents left in my account, I'm broke. If you're Jesus, if you're a son or daughter of Jesus Christ, you are not. You know, as an American citizen, when uh, this country was formed, they first started out with 10 rights, the Bill of Rights that they said, should not, that the founding fathers said, should not be diluted, nor should be they be taken away from us. Well, over the years since then, they've added a total of 17 more amendments. Now we're up to seven of 27 things that they say that, or that the founding fathers and subsequent uh, government officials have said that should not be taken away or diluted. But you know, those rights do erode. You know, and it's just, you know, no matter what party it is, whether it's Democrats, Republicans, Independents, Green, Pink, Blue, whatever, they feel that they have the right way. They've got the answers. So, you know, and we could see it even in, in this presidential cycle that we're going into now that there's rights that are eroding or that they want to erode. But the nice thing is, with Jesus Christ, he gives us the rights in here. They do not change. They don't disappear. Healing, it was irrelevant in when this was written as it is today. So, you know, God won't take our rights away from us, but it's our job to walk in them. Uh, Colossians 2, 6 and 7. 
and how we walk in, in the rights that God has given us. As ye therefore receive Christ, Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Now, that's one thing we can say about this church. They teach the word. Amen. Pastors teach the word, unadulterated, you know, and, you know, they feel that, you know, what God gives them, they share it, and if our toes get stepped on, well, then we need to change. God's word's not going to change. And Colossians 3.16 3.16 Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. The first part of that verse says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So what that's simply saying is, don't stop reading the word. Don't stop fellowshipping with God. And it, listen to, you know, other pastors, you know, that are teaching Jesus the way Jesus should be taught. Uh, the other part of it, uh, where it says, uh, admonishing one another, look at Moses. When the Israelites were in a battle, he got tired and his arms fell down and they, they started losing. But they had people to hold his arms up. If you get tired, let us know. We will hold your arms up for you. Hallelujah. It's like Pastor Perlene said, it's a war. This isn't, you know, you know, a, a game of patty cake. So if you get tired, let us know. You know, it's time Christians stop burying our fellow believers when they get tired and, and build them up and bear up, bear them up. Uh, so we already know that to let the word of God dwell on us richly, we've got to spend time reading it, meditating on it. But more importantly, we've got to spend time with God himself. You know, for me to get to know Jackie and Jackie to get to know me, we have to talk. If we don't talk, I can say, well, this is what I think. You know, Jackie's this, that, and the other thing. But, you know, James is a good example. I knew James at the, old, at the church that we both used to go to, but we never, never fellowship, never talked. It wasn't until we started going here that... I found out what a card he is. I mean, he is just, he's amazing. He loves to have fun, but more importantly than that, he also loves God. And that's, we need to fellowship with other believers. You know, so unless I, unless I spend time with God, not only reading his word, but just talking with him, and he'll talk to you. I mean, you know, he's, Considering the day and age we're in, we don't use a whole lot of these and thou, so I don't think God will say, you know, well, I say this to thee, and, you know, he'll talk to you what you understand. Yeah, and the other th one nice thing about God is what he says he will do for another, he will do for you. Uh, Numbers 23.19. You know, God will not lie. He's not a respecter of persons. God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? And Titus 1, 2.
in hope of eternal life, which God, that cannot lie, promised before the world began. And I guess that was it. Yeah, I think the problem with this verse, with, with especially this verse, is you've got the word that. God's not an object. He's not a car. He's not, you know, an animal. You know, it should say in something to the effect of God is, God cannot lie. Yeah, instead of being that, it should be spirit or, you know, something that denotes something other than a, an inanimate object. Because we all know he's far from inanimate. And Hebrews 6.18. That by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. So in other words, what all these three verses have said, God can't lie. It's just not physically possible for him to lie. And this is also backed up by Isaiah 55.11. So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void. Can we go back one, Miss Colleen? 55.11. Well, this is good, too. For you shall go out with joy and be led forth with peace. I think that fits in today. So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the things whereunto I sent it. So and the in the thing is in italics at the bottom of it. And so what it really should say, and it was added by the translators because they thought it would enhance the word a little bit, make it easier to understand. But what that last part should say, and it shall prosper whereunto I sent it. And another word for void is empty. So if we replace the void, yeah, if we replace void with empty, it would say, so shall my word be that goes, goes forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. We all know empty is nothing. You know, if you give somebody an empty bucket, there's nothing in it. But if you give them a bucket full of water, there's actually something in that bucket. So what this is saying is that once I say it, it will, uh, it will happen. You know, you know, God can't lie. He's not a respecter of person. So what he does for me, he'll do for you. What he does for you, he'll do for me. So, but we just, what we need to do is we need to have faith in God that he will do what he says. And then once we pray, like we did for your mom, you know, once that prayer is done, it's settled. It's done. We just have to, it takes a while sometimes for stuff to catch up in the natural world. But what is faith? How do we know it? it's faith? And faith is, is almost like, we just had Thanksgiving a couple weeks ago. Yep, and if you're believing for a healing, 
you might not have a whole lot of faith for it, but faith is like gravy. You know, uh, the word of God is the cornstarch that you put into it. And as you stir it and add a little bit of heat, it thickens. So as you're getting God's word into you about what he's saying about a situation, your faith thickens. And pretty soon, it doesn't, you know, somebody doesn't come up and say something to you and, you, you know, you just run away in fear. But Hebrews 11.1. 1, Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So this is saying that we have faith for stuff that is not manifested in the natural yet. But yet we still have hope for them. So whatever you might happen to be saying, well, it is what it is, uh, whatever you're saying that about, find out what God has said about it, line your words up with his, and then stand Right. You know, it's got no choice but to change. The circumstances have no choice but to change. Isaiah 46.10. When you do that, when you find out what God says in his word and then stand on it, we're doing what God does. God declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Now, the counsel there, and actually, if you take out the things and yet, the verse actually says, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. God spoke all this stuff into existence long ago, back in the ancient times. Some of it just hasn't manifested yet. But counsel, the definition of the word counsel there is the giving of advice, an opinion or instruction. It's given upon request or otherwise for directing the judgment or conduct of another. You tried to give counsel this week, and you got shut down. Pleasure is defined as a delight, acceptance, or a goodwill. So God's saying, I've given you all my opinion on the situation, and it's my delight to act upon it that way. So now we just need to have faith that he will, and then stand until it manifests. So let's go through uh, and look at some situations where the person had a really good opportunity to say it is what it is. In uh, Moses, in Deuteronomy 34, 7. And Moses was 120 years old when he died, and his eyes were not dim, nor his natural force abated. Yeah, I've got some gray hair, uh, and I could easily say, well, I'm getting old. But Moses was 120 when he died, and he still had the strength and eyesight of a young kid. Uh, you know, there's a lot of times I'll go out and try to do something, and my brain will say, yeah, let's go. We can do it. You know, and then, you know, the next day my body says, ha, 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 not quite. But if Moses could go out and do stuff at 120 years old and still had the physical strength and the stamina of a young person, why can't I? Let's go to Luke 5. We're going to read verses 1 through 5. And it came to pass that as the people pressed upon him to hear the word of God, he stood by the lake of Gennesaret and saw two ships standing by the lake, but the fishermen were gone out of them, and they were washing their nets. And he entered into one of the ships, which was Simon's, and prayed him that he would thrust out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people out of the ship. Now when he, 
Now when he had left speaking, he said unto Simon, Launch out into the deep, and let your nets down for a draught. And Simon answered, answering said unto him, Master, we've toiled all night, and we've taken nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. That word nevertheless in there is a very large word. You know, uh, Jesus, they had already fished all through the night, hadn't caught anything. You know, so they're tired, they're hungry, they just want to go home and go to bed. But Jesus, you know, asked Simon to row out a little bit so that he could teach the people. And, uh, you know, because Simon obliged him on it, he said, all right, throw your nets in. And, you know, Simon is saying, you know, Lord, come on, man. I've worked all night. I'm tired. I'm hungry. We haven't caught anything. What are throwing the nets out now going to do? But then he says, nevertheless. And that's nothing different than saying but. And he says, because you asked me to or you told me to, I will do it. And what happened? Uh, verses, we can look at verses 6 and 7. Because Simon did what Jesus asked him to do, When they had, had this done, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes and their net brake. Not only did they catch fish, they had to call the partners over and say, hey, I got too many. Come help me. And they beckoned unto their partners, which were in the other ship, that they should come and help them. And they came and filled both the ships so that they began to sink. They didn't go out and just catch a couple fish. They caught so many that they didn't know what to do. And God says that when he does something, he's going to do, our cup is going to run over. Their cup ran over. You know, but it's all because even though he, you know, you can imagine a conversation being that, you know, come on, Lord, I'm tired, I'm hungry, I want to go home and sleep. But because you told me to, I will. It's where the obedience comes in. Uh, and God will provide for you when, we when you have needs and we believe what he says about those needs. Let's go over to Matthew 14 and read verses 15 through 21 <coughs> about the feeding of the 5,000. And this is another one where the disciples had been with Jesus. They saw what he did and what he, you know, what he was all about. But they still had a doubt. They had a, well, it is what it is moment. And when it was evening, his disciples came to him saying, this is a desert place and there is and the time is now past. Send the multitude away that they may go into the villages and buy themselves victuals. So send them home or send them into town so they can get something to eat. They're hungry. You know, it's nighttime. But Jesus said unto them, they need not depart. Give ye them to eat. Jesus simply says, hey, dudes, you feed them. And they said unto him, we have here but five loaves and two fishes. It is what it is. We don't have enough to feed them. Jesus simply says, bring them hither to me. And he commanded the multitude to sit down on the grass and took the five loaves and the two fishes and looking up to heaven, he blessed and brake and gave the loaves to his disciples and the disciples to the multitude. And they did all eat and were filled and they took up the fragments that remained, 12 baskets full. And they, they that had eaten were about 5,000 men besides women and children. 
So, you know, if you do the math real quick, you figure if half of those guys were married, now you've got 7,500 people, plus if they had two kids, you're talking about 15,000 people, give or take. Five loaves and two fish fed 15,000 people and gathered up a ton of leftovers? Well, we'll, we'll be conservative. <laughs> but, you know, you talk about God going above, above and beyond. You know, so if he did it for the 5,000 or however many were there, why won't he provide us a meal? You know, or, you know, amplify what we do have to where, you know, if somebody shows up unexpectedly for dinner, it's like, hey, sure, come on. We got more than plenty. You know, even though you know what's in the pot. You know, and it's like it, you have your own it is what it is moment. And next thing you know, you're putting leftovers away. Uh, let's go over to Luke 17, 7, 11 through 15. And we're going to talk about when Jesus raised the dead man. And it came to pass the day after that he went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him and much people. Now when he came nigh to the gate of the city, behold, there was a dead man carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and much people of the city was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said unto her, Weep not. And he came and touched the bier, and they that bare him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say unto thee, Arise. And he that was dead sat up and began to speak, and he delivered him to his mother. If I'm understanding it correctly, if you were a widow back in, in the time of Jesus and you had no male people to take care of you, you were pretty much on your own. Uh, you know, not only that, but she had already lost her husband and now her son passes away. Yeah, and she's doing what you know, people do, they grieve, no doubt about it. But all Jesus said was just, all right, step back. See what we can do. And what's he do? He raises the son. Now, if anybody was in a position for an is-what-it-is moment, she said when, he, when Jesus told her in verse 13 to, to weep not, she could have gone on a long you know, speech to him, well, Jesus, my only son is dead. I've got no way to support myself. What do, you know, and really gotten down in the weeds and stayed in the weeds. But all Jesus said, weep not. And then he raised his son or raised her son. So, you know, if you find yourself in a what seems like a, a situation that there's no way out of, just remember, God will get you out. Let's go and look at Lazarus in John 11, and we're going to read verses 1 through 7, and then we're going to drop down and read 11 through the, re through the rest of the chapter. Now, a certain man was sick, named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. Now, this is the same Mary and Martha that uh, hung out with Jesus. So they knew they had seen what he could do. They knew all about him. It was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore his sister sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, this sickness, and pay attention to this part of it, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. So Jesus is telling the people, he's not dead. You know, or he, yes, he, he, this sickness, he will not die from it.
You ready for the next one, Miss Kevin? Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, you know, Lazarus knew who Jesus was. Jesus knew who Lazarus was. So it wasn't like just somebody you pass on the street. When he had heard, therefore, that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. Because Jesus said earlier that this sickness is not unto death, he was in no rush to get to him. He didn't feel the time constraint that everybody else did. Then after that, saith he to his disciples, let us go into Judea again. And we're going to move down to verse 11. These things said he, and after that he said unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awake him out of sleep. Jesus said, he's, at this point, Lazarus had died. At least in our terms, he had died. Jesus saying that, all he's doing is he's sleeping. He's not dead. But let's go. I'm going to go wake him up. Then said his disciples, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. And they're thinking that, well, because he was sick, the sleep will, will help his body heal. Howbeit Jesus spake of his death, but they thought he had spoken of taking, a rest, taking of rest in sleep. Then Jesus said unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. It's like, guys, I didn't want to say it, but you put me into a corner. Lazarus isn't sleeping, he's dead. That's all there is to it. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, to the intent ye may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. And which I think what Jesus was saying there, if I had gone and he was still alive, you would not see the, with the glory of God to the extent that you are going to see now. I would have healed a sickness, but that is nothing compared to what you're going to see. Then said Thomas, which is called Didymus, unto his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Then when Jesus came, he found that he had lain in a grave four days already. Now Bethany was nigh unto Jerusalem, about 15 furlongs off. And many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. And I'm sure it's the same thing back then. It happens that, you know, when somebody passes now, you know, you try to say the best thing, but it might not be the best thing. You're, you're trying to comfort the people is what you're trying to do. But are, you, are what you're saying lining up with what God's word says. You know, I mean, you know, when my dad passed, you know, a lot of people said stuff. And the thing that I remember the most that they said was, well, you'll see him again in glory. It's like, I understand that, but that does not solve anything now. You know, after, as the years have gone by, it's like that's actually become a peaceful thought. You know, where, yeah, I will see my dad again. I can't wait to see him. But then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary sat still in the house. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. So Martha was just saying, Lord, you know, if you had come, you would have healed him. Everything would have been cool. We wouldn't be having what's going on now. But I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it to you. So she's got faith that even though Lazarus has died, that if Jesus asked God to raise him, he would. So she's somewhat coming out of her it is what her, it is what it is moment. Jesus said unto her, thy brother shall rise again. So now that's the time that they should have taken off running around, hopping and screaming. 
But instead, Martha says, Martha saith unto him, I know that he shall rise again in a resurrection at the last day. So she's basically saying, Lord, I know that when this world is said and done, I will see him again. That's not what Jesus meant at all. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? She saith unto him, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. And when she, and when she had so said, she went her way and called Mary, her sister, secretly, saying, The Master is come and calleth for thee. So after her discussion with Jesus is done, she goes back to the house and says, Mary, Jesus is here. You know, and she does it off on the side so that you know nobody else knows about it. So Mary, as soon as she had heard that, she arose quickly and came unto him. Now Jesus was not yet come into town, but was in that place where Martha met him. So he hadn't left. He was still where him and Martha had their discussion. The Jews then, were, which were with her in the house and comforted her, when they saw Mary, they, that she rose up hastily and went out, followed her, saying, She goeth unto the grave to weep there. They thought she was just getting up to go out to the graveside and just sit and ponder and, and cry. Little did they know. Then when Mary was come where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying unto him, Lord, if thou hast been here, my brother had not died. We're rehashing Martha's conversation with Jesus. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews also weeping which came with her, he groaned in his spirit and was troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said unto him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then said the Jews, Behold, how he loved him. And some of them said, could, th could not this man which opened the eyes of the blind have caused that even this man should not have died? So now they're talking amongst themselves. Well, if he really loved Lazarus the way they say he did, why didn't he come here and stop him from dying? Jesus, therefore, again groaning in himself, coming to the grave. And this is another important part. It was a cave, and a stone lay upon it. Jesus said, Take ye away the stone. Martha, the sister, said of him, said of him that was dead. She said to the Lord, By this time he stinks, for he's been dead four days. Jesus saith unto her, Said I not unto thee, that if thou would believe, you should see the glory of God? They took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me, and I knew that thou hearest me always. Because of these people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. And when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound about with a napkin. Jesus saith unto them, Loose him and let him go. Then many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things of Jesus 
seen the things which Jesus did believed on him. Now, I don't think, back in verse 35, it says Jesus wept. I don't think Jesus was crying because Lazarus had died because he knew what was going to happen. Right. He was more concerned that the people didn't have a whole lot of faith in what was going to happen. Back in, in those days, when a person died, they would wrap each individual finger, each individual toe, wrap the legs, wrap the arms. If you've seen an Egyptian mummy, that's, um, that's the way I see it happening. And then they would take and they would put um, like a resin all over the, the grave clothes. So it, they became encased like a cocoon. The face was left open because it had something to do with the spirit. They, didn't, they wanted to make sure that if the spirit came back that he would be able to get in. But they went, I think it was the third day, to put the, the napkin over the face to cover the face. Uh, now, you know, it says in here that Lazarus was laid in a, ca- in a cave. Now, you've got a guy, we'll say he's 150, 175 pounds. The resin that they put on him, it was about another, an additional 150 pounds. So now he's wrapped tight. He can't really move. On top of that, he's in a cave. You know, and when we think of funerals, we think today when you know, a person's laid out in a casket and they've got street clothes on, you know, where if you know, God raises them up, they can get up and just easily walk away. Wasn't so back in that day. He was so wrapped up so tight that for him to even, number one, for Jesus to raise him from the dead is one thing. But for him to be able to get out of the cave is another thing. You know, I don't know. You know, the last time y'all had been wrapped up and had about 300 pounds of weight put on you and then tried to move. But it ain't easy, I imagine. Uh, so let's go over in to Matthew 17. We're going to look at verses 24 through 27. And this is about Jesus in a temple towns. Matthew 17, verses 24 through 27. And when they were come to Capernaum, they that received tribute money came to Peter and said, Doth not your master pay tribute? And the tribute was about 88 cents. So it wasn't a large amount of money for today, but I'm, back in those days I'm sure it very well might have been. But he didn't have any money anyway. And he said, and he saith yes. And when he was come into the house, Jesus prevented him. So Jesus stopped him from going into the house, saying, What thinkest thou, Simon? Of whom do the kings of the earth take custom or tribute, of their own children or of strangers? Peter said unto him, Of strangers. Jesus saith unto him, Then are the children free? Notwithstanding, lest we should offend them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take up the fish that first cometh up. And when thou hast opened its mouth, thou shalt find a piece of money. Take it and give it unto them for me and thee. 
So Jesus is saying, you know, whether this is a just tax or not, we're going to pay it. Go down to the sea, throw your fishing line in. First, first fish that comes up, you'll find money in its mouth. It was enough to pay the tax to, to satisfy them. But the biggest thing is God will supply your needs. If he did it for the disciples, he'll do it for us. So how do we get from, well, it is what it is, to the final step of that where now we have the manifested glory of God you know, in this situation? Well, number one, you've got to go through the Bible and find out what God says about your situation. Uh, and whatever you need, whether it's healing, finances, peace, God will provide it for you. We've seen earlier that he's not a respecter of persons. He'll do it for me. He'll do it for you. If he's done it for one, he's got to do it for you. He won't lie about it. But find out what he says in his word and then keep that in front of you. You know, through reading the Bible, listening to other pastors, and but mainly talking with him and asking the Holy Spirit to reveal stuff to you. Uh, and what I would really strongly suggest, don't sit back and wait. Don't wait until, you know, you get that, you know, million-dollar bill or you go to a doctor and he says, you know, you've got so much time to live. Get it in your system now because then right now you're not under pressure. But when you get under pressure is when you need it. Be like the sponge that soaks it up now so that when you're squeezed, all that comes out of your mouth, it's not it is what it is, but it is what God says it is. I am healed. I am rich. And then not only that, but stand on that as that is the final authority, no matter what happens. You, you can go to the doctor, or you can keep getting stuff in the mail that, well, you know, checking account's empty, or, you know, now, well, it's not this, but it's progressed into this. It doesn't matter. You're up here above the, the fray. You're not down in the weeds, stuck in the briars. But whatever, you know, speak what God says about it. And then you'll be doing like what God did in Isaiah 46.10. You'll be declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. God will take care of you, no matter what. So we just have to find out what he says and then believe it, stand on it, and just keep thanking him for it. That's right.